We talked about how that in Romans 2, the Bible says that God has written the Word of God on the tables of our hearts. Now, we've come through it, and we're going to look at it today. As we go a little bit farther, we're going to put some more pieces to the puzzle on the concept of how God uh, looks at and deals with our conscience and how he, he really deals with us in those things. Now, last week, we, we kind of dealt with Paul's declaration. Now, we took it and put it into our own mindset from a practical aspect, and verse 15 talked about that Paul was ready to preach to the Gentiles. And I remember I talked about that that's the job that we all ought to be focusing on if you're a saved person this morning. God has given you a calling, and that calling, if you're saved, is to bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And we went through the different aspects of preaching and how that it doesn't necessarily mean standing behind a pulpit, but uh, telling people the story of Christ and every given application and situation that God allows you to be in. We all we put it in the context that Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles, so it's, it's him who gets this great commission uh, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has now come into effect after the death of Christ, and take it to the Gentile nation. Verse 16, wow, what a great verse last week. Not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the power of God unto salvation. And we looked at that and talked about how that you and I should not be ashamed of what God has given us. Now today we're going to look at the next section, and it's down in verse 17 through 20. And I told you this Thursday night in Bible study when I gave you one of the, I told you I gave you one of the greatest keys to unlock the Scriptures then I told you Sunday we were going to look at another one. In Romans chapter 1, coming down through here in this passage, I don't know, I don't know of another passage in the Bible, in my own personal life, that has unlocked more information and given me more insight into the Scriptures than what I'm about to show you this morning. I tell you right now, in the time that we have this morning, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this justice. And uh, there's just too much here for mortal man to put into an hour. Uh, if, I, if I would have liked to have my way of doing this, we would have taken us probably a, a week to go through this and lay out all of the details. Uh, but we don't have that luxury, and so we're going to try to do what we can do today, and the Holy Spirit of God will have to make up the difference and, and put it into your hearts the way that uh, it needs to be put in there. But simply put, this is a tremendous passage, and if you're pay attention and have some inkling of the Word of God this morning, you're going to go out of here a little richer. If you're just a young Christian and you're still contemplating learning the Scriptures, I believe it'll be a great challenge to you to show you why you need to study the Scriptures, what the Scriptures has for you, and, uh, and, then, and then give you that motivation from there. I know in my own life, when I heard these things as a young Christian, uh, and you know, people take two different approaches to it, and you see it all the time. You'll have people that come to Thursday night Bible study or maybe even Sunday morning and they hear things they don't understand and they take the position, well, you know what, I didn't really like it because I didn't really care for it because I didn't understand it all. Well, and then you get the other person, this is how I was. Once I heard things that I didn't understand but they blew my mind, I was not going to rest till I knew those things myself. And it's, it's just the different approach you come to the things of the Bible. You can either blow it off and say, well, I didn't understand it, so, you know, whatever. Or you can say, you know what, I didn't understand it, but by the grace of God, I'm going to understand it. And you get in that book and let somebody help you get it together. Now, we're going to begin reading here in verse 17. In fact, I want to read in verse 16 so we get a little context here. But we're going to start the message here in just a second in verse 17. But here's what he said. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, here we go, where we're at today. For therein, the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Verse 20, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. We ask You today, Lord, to to, uh, lift this message up and And, Lord, as I try to lay out in such a feeble attempt as a human man uh, to try to explain the eternalness of God and all of the things, Lord, uh, Holy Spirit of God, help me, first of all. Help me to be able to clearly articulate everything that you'd have me to say. Help me to be of clear thought and mind and presence to lay it out in an orderly fashion and an understandable way that your people can grasp it. And then help these your people, Lord. Help them to have an open heart. Have them to have confessed whatever sin in their life might keep them from or hinder the Holy Spirit of God from giving them what they need today. And Lord, we do love you. We do thank you and praise you for all that you do for us. And we thank you for our church, for the men and women that, that and the desire that they have to love your word. And we'll thank you and praise you now in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, verse 17 is where we're going to pick it up today, and it says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, I want to talk about that so you have an understanding. And, you know, if you're taking notes on the book of Romans, you want to understand this little thing because, you know, I don't know how many times I've been asked, what does the Bible mean here when it says from faith to faith? Well, basically what he's talking about, he's talking about how that the glory of God was revealed from faith to faith. The first faith would be the Old Testament. The second faith would be the New Testament. You know, in the Bible, you're going to find... In fact, if you look down there, look at verse 17, it says, For it is written, see? And what is written there is the just shall live by faith. You see, that's a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 in the Old Testament. What he's showing here is this, that the, the glory of God, the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ was revealed, and we talked about how this was in the Old Testament a couple of weeks ago, was revealed from faith to faith. Faith in the Old Testament and now faith in the New Testament. And, you know, there's a difference between faith uh, or, or how God looks at faith in the Old Testament and He does in the New Testament. Faith is an operation wherever you go in the Bible. For a man to find a relationship with God, you have to have two working ingredients all the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. The first one has to be grace. If God doesn't provide grace, nobody's going to find God or get saved. Grace is the, is the absolute essential that if we're going to ever find God, have a relationship with God, or certainly get salvation. The Bible says all the way back in the Old Testament, Jack there in Genesis chapter 6, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is an operation all the way through your Bible. The second ingredient, and it's the ingredients that's talking about here, is faith. Now, wherever you're at, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, a man has to exercise faith through God's grace to have any kind of relationship with God. Now, that's what he's saying here, and that's why he's going back to Habakkuk 2 to show you and I that the just shall live by faith. And uh, by the way, just as a side note, this was the great verse that that Martin Luther found when he was looking uh, caught in the snarls of the Roman Catholic Church and all of the work system. This verse, when he began to read Romans, 
was the verse that God's Spirit used to bring Martin Luther to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was caught up in a system of works, but he read a verse in the Bible that said, the just shall live by faith. And what a great verse that is. You see, the difference between faith in the Old Testament and faith in the New Testament is simply this. In the Old Testament, they had to exercise faith in whatever God told them to do with any given situation. Noah had to have, he had grace from God, but he had to exercise faith and to believe what God said in building an ark to save him from the flood. Noah could have had all of the grace that God wanted to give him. He could have stood there and said, well, I believe God and have faith in God, but you know what? If he never would have built that ark, he would have drowned it just like everybody else. So in the Old Testament, we see that, that faith is based on a man uh, doing, uh, exercising that faith and whatever God tells him to do. When he dealt with Abraham sometime later, he brought him out on a starry night. And he showed him the stars up there. And uh, God and Abraham were kind of having a little star party out there. And he was showing him all those stars. And the Bible says that uh, God and him were having a little conversation. And God looked down at Abraham and said, you know what, Abraham? He says, someday your seed is going to be like the stars of all up there of heaven. And I'll tell you what. I mean, I bet you they were just popping out everywhere. This looked like it probably... I've, I've been out sometimes when it's, it's been so dark... And the stars have been so bright that it literally cast a shadow uh, on the earth without no other impending light coming in. And I bet it was an incredible view. And he said to Abraham, someday your seed is going to be like the stars of heaven. And Abraham said, I believe that, Lord. God said, you what? He said, I believe that. He said, you really mean here you are 90-some years old and you believe that someday your stars are going to be like that? You really believe that story? He looks up at God and said, you know what, Lord? If you tell me it's true... I'll believe it. And at that point, the Bible says that Abraham's faith in what God told him about the stars was counted unto him for righteousness. You see? In the Old Testament, God told them different things to do. And they had to exercise faith in what God told them. That's faith in the Old Testament. Now, God's not going to tell you to build a boat. He's not going to tell you that, that uh, I, he's not going to tell you that your seed's going to you know, and I know Doug and Terry have a tough time getting this verse, but he's not going to tell them that their seed is going to populate uh, all of eternity. Oh, they're not here. Okay. But, uh, but that's the, that's the, he's going to tell us something else. The New Testament faith is based on God telling you to believe in the death of his son on Calvary's cross. And now when it talks faith to faith, that's what it's talking about. The, re the power of God, the glory of God was revealed from faith to faith. The Old Testament faith was based on what God told them to do in any given situation that He told them. The New Testament faith is God's, you exercising faith in one thing, and that is Christ's death on the cross and the price that He paid. And of course, in the Old Testament, Christ hadn't died, so they couldn't exercise faith in that, so they had to exercise faith in what God simply told them to do in any given situation. And that's what it's talking about when it says, from faith to faith. Then he says this in verse 18, and this is another great concept. And this concept I'm about to get into now is if, if other than probably here, would open up some real can of worms. But actually, maybe it'll open up some here, but uh, that's okay. He says, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this is a great concept that traditionally Gentiles cannot get. Now, for the most part, unless you're a, uh, we're all Gentiles here. And uh, you and I as Gentiles, 
We all have the same basic fundamental problems of, of human nature as it pertains to the Gentiles. And this is a great concept that you have here. And this is a mindset that Gentiles get. Every time you find this thing working through it, uh, it's always connected with Gentiles. You know, most churches are destroyed today as far as teaching anything about the Bible. And yet the reason why that is goes all the way back to about 1900 when a number of things began to uh, unfold itself that was in time was going to destroy Bible Christianity. One of them was a thing called neo-Orthodoxy. Neo-Orthodoxy had to do with a group of churches that all came out of the Roman Catholic Church for the most part during the Reformation. Neo-Orthodoxy had to do with the Methodists, the Presbyterians, though the Methodists didn't directly come out. Uh, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, and the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Those churches make up today what we call uh, and, uh, uh, the uh, Neo-Orthodox. And of course the Roman Catholic Church would be part of that too to a certain degree. As time went on, these churches began to take a very liberal approach to God and the Bible. And of course, if you know anything about church history, you know by this time, 1900, they had, they had put away the King James Bible and now they were into the RSV of 1881 and a little bit later on the ASV of 1901 and then everything else that came from down the line from that point on. But neo-orthodoxy was a movement to get away from the hard-line teaching about sin, judgment, hell, and it moves into what we commonly call back in the 60s and the 70s, the 80s, the social gospel. And uh, the gospel now isn't about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for men and women who are dying and going to hell. The social gospel doesn't believe there's a hell. The social gospel doesn't make anybody a sinner. The guy that's a social gospel preacher, and this would be all your neo-Orthodox neo today, the guy that is a, that is a uh, social gospel mentality preacher, he's going to tell you that God is not a God of anger. He's not a God of judgment or wrath. He's only a God of love. And they go around preaching what we call a social gospel, help your fellow man, you know. And, uh, and I'm all for helping the fellow man. But to them, it's, it runs like this. Now, I, I think that we as a church, uh, we ought to help our own people first, and then as we can, we help anybody else that we can that needs it. But I am against, totally against, I am totally against just helping somebody get their bellies full of food or help them with this or help them with that when at the end of the day we supply their physical needs but we don't give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. My philosophy it is. You may have a blown up car, you may have a house burned down, you may have no food, you may have no place to sleep tonight. What good do I do you if I take care of all those things and then allow you to die and go to hell because I was focused on your physical needs and not your spiritual needs? Bible Christianity needs to be both. You ever notice that Jesus did meet the social needs that he needed, but he never mailed it, missed an opportunity to give them their spiritual needs? The social gospel runs like this. God is love. Those that dwell in love dwell in God. And the God of love dwells in them. Now see how nice that sounds? I mean, let me say it again. Imagine me now. No, don't imagine me this. I couldn't get there. Here it is. God is love. Those that dwell in God, dwell in love, dwell in God. And the God of love dwells in them. See, that is the, that is the greatest concept of what the social gospel is. God is a God of love. He loves everybody. 
So the next step is then we're all God's children, which we're not. Bible teaches very clearly and plainly that just because you were born into planet earth don't make you a child of God. You may be God's creation. But the Bible is very clearly that there's two families in this world. You learn that in the first lesson of discipleship, don't you? Certainly you do because it's an important lesson. And what you have now is you have the fact that the social gospel believes that God is love. And if you love everybody, then my goodness, God has to be in you because God is a God of love. That's why most of them are pathetists. That's why most of them uh, want to meet man's needs uh, but never want to deal with man's sin because if you're all, the, you're all God's child and God is love and there's no judgment of God, then there can't be any hell and there can't be any sinners. I've been in the ministry for probably almost 36 years. And in the last five, six, seven, eight years of my life, I've, it's really getting harder to find sinners. <laughs> I guarantee you I could find a brontosaurus in, in Central Park quicker than I could find a sinner in New York City. They're not around anymore. And it's because of the mindset of the social gospel that nobody's a sinner. Okay? Nobody's a sinner. And uh, you're going to find that uh, added to that then comes the New Age movement and then the movement of unity. And uh, in those mindset, there's no heaven, there's no hell. There's no God. God is what every man... You know what? You find, you know, you find a, a Gentile term when it comes to God. And you find it in all of the social things that they want to tie to the Bible, but they want to stay away from the Bible. And it is, it is your higher power. You ever hear that? You ever go to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you know, that you're going to, uh, you're going to, they're going to talk about, you can't do this on your own. Jamie's laughing because she just graduated from Alcoholics Anonymous. Congratulations. <laughs> you need to go. They'll say, you can't do it on your own. You can't, you can't make this thing on your own. You have to call on your higher power. Now, you know why they say that? Because they'll never say God, and they'll certainly never say Jesus Christ. Because they want to devoid themselves in the social mentality of the gospel, in the social gospel, your higher power is whatever you deem it to be. You could be a witch doing human sacrifices, and that was your higher power. That's where they're at, see? In other words, in the social mindset, there are no absolutes. No absolutes. I was preaching, not preaching, I was teaching in a college a number of years ago. They used to invite me in. I used to do a program called The Gospel of the Stars. And uh, somebody would always worm me in. And I was, I was uh, at Malone College back in Canton, Ohio. And, uh, you know, they basically turned 80 students over to me. And like you could say whatever you wanted to say. So I'm going down through and talking about how that the Bible is the, the Word of God and the absolute in life. And, and I'm tying the whole thing in, showing them how the gospel is portrayed through the stars and all that. And these kids, they're, they're into it, man. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't, everybody was writing things down and they were getting into it. But I could see the college professor was sitting in the back. And boy, he was sweating bullets. He hated what I was saying. And he laid those things out, and, and, and I was coming up there, and he'd sitting back there, you know, and you could tell he had a nervous twitch in his foot. He was going, going. And I made a statement, and I said, and, and, and I said, it was kind of like the climax. And I said, you know what? I said, the Word of God, the Word of God in your life and my life is the absolute that you and I need in my life. And in the back, I heard him bang a book down, and he said back there, there's no such thing as an absolute. Because that's what they're teaching. And I'm in a situation, you know, I threw up one of those Nehemiah prayers, you know, like in the, in the middle of it. And I come back and I said, oh, really? Well, that sounded like a pretty absolute statement. 
There's an absolute. You bet there is. But in the world, we don't want that because when you understand, uh, the Gentiles today don't want to deal with the fact that the wrath of God is already on unsafe people and on this planet right now. You know why the, you know why the homosexual community and the lesbian community use a rainbow? You know, ever stop and consider that? Well, first of all, the rainbow is found in your Bible when God makes a covenant with somebody. Second of all, the reason why God uses the rainbow, because you have the colors of the rainbow, which is very beautiful, and they're all colors, different colors, that they all blend together and go together within that rainbow. And the reason why they picked the rainbow is because their sexual uh, orientation, uh, whatever it may be, and all the differences that they have and the perversion that they have, they want you to believe and me to believe that under the sign of the rainbow, we're all the same. And the fact that I may prefer uh, my wife and you may prefer, if you're a woman, another woman and another man, another man, or wh wherever it goes from there, that, that it's okay. Under the big banner of the rainbow, we're all God's children. Well, no, we're not. I don't know if you know it or not, but they picked a great deal. Because every time you find the rainbow, it's just after God, either before or right after, He came down and kicked the snot out of somebody. But that's where the social mindset is today. You know, and it's, a, it's, a, it, it's something that you're going to find in dealing with it as you come down through. One of the great things that you learn about Gentiles from Romans chapter 1, and we'll get into these in segments as we go through. Whenever they, whenever they dump God, they always replace God with something else. Some of you that are going to be good at working in counseling and working with people, you're going to find, uh, and I tell you about these, and uh, over the years I've cataloged all the, all the personality quirks that people have, and i got a little uh, book full of them so I can I go over them so I don't ever forget them. But I always put them into, always put them into like little syndromes. And of course, a while back, you know, uh, one of the Dirty Harry movies, I can't remember which one, he made a classic statement, and uh, he said uh, somebody was a legend in their own mind. And uh, I have a syndrome that Gentiles get into, that is what I call the their legend in their own mind syndrome. And that syndrome simply is that we think we have a relationship with God when we really don't. That's what Gentiles do. When Gentiles lose God or the concept of God, the first thing they do is get into religion. And they get some form of religion that in their mind they believe they have this great relationship with God. We talked about it <coughs> Thursday night a little bit. And I told you, I said, you know what? The reason why people don't like the Bible because the Bible is the great reality check in our lives. You see, we sit here, you and me, and we think we love God. And if I would uh, ask you one-on-one -on -one or in a crowd this size, I'd say, do you all love God? Or if you came in to see me with a counseling scenario, and I would say to you, do you really love God? Or, uh, and I always usually ask people this. I say, rate yourself to me on a scale 1 to 10. Where do you think you're at in your own personal relationship with God? Many, many times you'll have people that'll say, well, I'd say I'm a, I'm a seven or eight. Sometimes you get people who are honest and you say, Bob, I'm not even on that scale. I'm so low. And sometimes you find people that stand up there and look at you, blink at you like a frog in a hailstorm, and they say, oh, I'm a 10 or an 11. And the truth of the matter is, if you want to know, if you want to know whether you really love God or not, don't rely on your own brain cells to figure it out for you. 
Get into the Bible where it gives you some absolute definites about whether you love him or not. The Bible says, if any, 1 Corinthians 8, 3, if any man love God, the same is known of him. You realize that if, if you love God, you don't have to go around telling everybody about it? You don't have to get you a 25-pound King James Bible and, and, and carry it around to show everybody? You don't have to get you a, a big cross to hang around your neck or, or something like that. You just, it, it shows. You know why it shows? Because there are certain things that identify with people that are in love. And, uh, of course, Gentiles are famous for that. And they, Gentiles like to replace God. And Gentiles, uh, are, and I don't appreciate what I'm saying because I'm a Gentile, but this is true. When it comes to the Jews and the Gentiles, the Gentiles are much dumber than the, than the Jews are. I think that's part of the reason why Gentiles don't like Jews. Jews are much smarter. You ever notice that when God wanted to fool uh, the Gentiles, He replaced their Bible with 5,000 translations? You ever notice that He never did that to the Jews? The Jews had the same old Masoretic text that they use today as the same one they used all down through history. The devil, the devil never came to them and gave them another version of the Old Testament. You know why? Because he knew they were smarter than that. They knew. They may not have obeyed them and they may not ever fulfilled it, but they knew what the oracles of God was. Gentiles don't. Gentiles ain't got a clue. They think every translation out there must be God's Word. Then when you read five of them and it doesn't even say the same thing and three or four verses aren't even found in these, they're in these, they just, they just say, well, gee, I was just, but, oh, I just really love God. You know, over my years, when I start to really nail somebody down and really nail their hide to the wall, you know the only defense they have to throw back at me? They say, well, you don't have very much love in your heart, do you? See, that's a defense. Because they can't equate love with truth. Not in the world we live in today. And I want to tell you something else. And note this. Whenever a Jew got messed up, he got what messed him up from the Gentiles. Did you ever notice back there in the Old Testament, one of the things that God told them is not to marry from the other nations? Not to have anything to do with the other nations? And he even goes so far as this, and oh, you social gospel people aren't going to like this. He even goes so far to tell them that when you go in and take that city that is run by the Gentiles, he says, here's what I want you to do. You kill every man, you kill every woman, you kill every child, you kill every animal, you kill every beast, you wipe them out totally and completely. How's that for a God of love? You see? He had a purpose and a reason behind doing that, which we don't have time to get into this morning. But I guarantee you, every time the Jew got his sights off of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, every time he got into Baal worship, every time he got into all the goofy stuff that was going on, he got it from a Gentile. And God knew, and the devil knew, that if he wanted to mess up the nation of Israel, he had to do it through Gentiles, because Gentiles are goofy. We're goofy. We actually believe God wrote more than one Bible and they don't match. 
We actually believe that you got to know Greek and Hebrew to understand the Bible, and then God, and it, which would take you five lifetimes to get them both down. And there's probably less than one millionth of a percent of men and women in this world that can speak those two languages. And then we're stupid enough to think that someday God's going to judge us at the judgment seat of Christ by a book that we didn't even have the ability to read and understand anyhow. But see, that's how goofy Gentiles are. Gentiles are goofy. And I'm a Gentile, or I was. I mean, when you get saved, you're no longer a Gentile. You understand that. Now you're a Christian. Because in the body of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And Gentiles, in America, you see the full effect of Gentiles. Only I can go back and show you how, why Europe's an amoral and apostasy. We don't have time. Let's just deal with our own. The bottom line is this. When this country lost God and dumped God, Gentiles in particular... This is what happened. Once you dump God as a Gentile, then you began to replace God with something. And Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, that the problem with Gentiles is, is they profess themselves to be wise. As in professor. They profess themselves to be wise, but they become fools. Because what they profess in isn't God. And I guarantee you, across this city and across this country, in 95% of the pulpits are men standing up professing to be wise and reality when it comes to the Word of God, they're fools. You know why? Because they got the legend in their own mind syndrome. And I guarantee you that many of God's people think they have a relationship with God, think that God goes along with the goofy stuff that they do, think that God says, well, it's okay to go out and carouse and drink and do this and do that, think it's okay to hang out with their friends, they actually think that God is okay with that and all the other things that go along with that. It's, it, they actually think that that's okay in God's mind because from reality, when it gets into the Bible, that's not the way it works. Somebody says, well, I love God. The Bible says, if any love mummy, he'll keep my commandments. Now where are you at? Now where are you at? He says, well, I love him. The Bible says, if anybody loves me, he'll keep my word. Now where are you at? See how the Bible just makes it so exact? The Bible doesn't leave you any room to wiggle. And boys, Gentiles, we all like wiggle room, man. Gentiles today, and Isaiah prophesied this all the way back in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. He said that Gentiles would at some point begin to call evil good and good evil. That's America. That's some of God's people. What a hundred years ago would have blushed a child of God and brought him to the altar where he'd have fell in his face before God and wept and asked for God's forgiveness for his godless, sinless lifestyle. God, people just yawn today. You know why? Because you're a legend in your own mind. You have been caught up in a trap that the evil that you do, you think is good. And the good that God wants you to do, you look at as evil. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 14 tells you why that is. Because the Bible says that truth is falling in the streets. And boy, that's a true statement. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 5, uh, it gives you another great concept of Gentiles. It says, evil men, evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. And this is why you have America the way it is today, who is run by unsaved Gentiles or Gentiles that are a part of this neo-orthodoxy mindset 
Oh, every Gentile goes to church. Let me tell you something. Next Sunday, churches will be packed. Do you ever wonder why Gentiles traditionally won't go to church on any other days but Easter and, and Christmas? Do you ever analyze the psychology behind that? I'll tell you why. Christian, worldly, godless Christians and people who profane to be Christians but are not, they can't stand going to church on any other two days but those two days. But next week, it'll be packed. Christmas, it'll be packed. You know why? Because God's people and a lot of Gentiles love going to church on a day that he's dead. And they love going to church on Christmas when he's a little nice, little sweet baby. Who doesn't love a baby? Oh, they're flocked there because they got the little nativity scene with the little angels with the little Mary and the little Joseph and, and all those things, you know, and, and uh, a little baby Jesus. And sometimes they even have real little nativity with real animals, you know. And, and they have real little babies. And people walk stand around and they say, oh, this is such a nice time. Yeah, you know what? I think we ought to have Revelation chapter 19 day. I mean, fair is fair. If you're going to have him when he's a baby at the first coming of Christ, let's have him with the eyes of a burning fire. Let's have him with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of us, by which he should smite the nation. That's why I always, you know, a good, you know, pastor's like a quarterback. And he's got to, he's got to know to read the plays. And every Sunday morning's a different play. Different people, different circumstances. You got to read them. And always, I've always enjoyed, uh, I've always enjoyed Easter and Christmas because they come expecting one thing and they always go home with something else. My standard Easter message is not about the, uh, him piercing his hands and, and the lily of the valley. You know, a good one would be a letter from hell. That's a great Easter message. That's a great Easter message. I mean, they went in and they're thinking they're going to get all teary-eyed and weeped. I'm here sitting on there, and somebody telling the story as he walked down the road with his back and he stumbled, and everybody just visualizes for a moment. And they just, in their own mind, you know, they're seeing him walk by and they're, they're following along, and then they see a sign over here in one of the little stores, Coors Light. Thanks, Lord, I'm going to go over here and have one of these now. I think we had to have a second coming day. I think you ought to preach. I think you ought to preach about a man that, that was burning in a burning in an aircraft and couldn't get out, and he was yelling at the top of his lungs, "Cut off my legs! Cut off my legs! Cut off my legs!" But that don't go over good today. We don't like to think about men burning in hell, do we? We don't like to think about that, even though it's a reality. We don't like to think about that. Bible says evil man understand not judgment. Now this is why the man can't understand, as the Bible has already said, Gentiles, that the wrath of God abides on unsaved people in this country and other countries that reject the Word of God. Men <coughs> who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Boy, that's us. That's us. If you're in a pulpit today, you don't dare, and you're kind of kind of national pastor, boy, you don't ever you don't ever get up in the pulpit and say that AIDS is God's judgment on a sinful nation. Boy, you don't say that. You don't get up and say 911, 911 was God's judgment on a nation. 
You don't ever go to the place where you talk about hurricanes. Or now you can't, it used to be hurricanes were all named women. Now you got hemicanes. A couple of years ago, maybe it was last year, I don't remember when it was, New Orleans got flooded out. And everybody and everybody, everybody get all, you know, around national disaster, president gets on. You know what? Let me tell you something. And you probably don't know this. The most demonic organization that in this world that infiltrates and destroys almost 99% of Bible's Christianity is located down in New Orleans. But you see, when you look at that from a Gentile standpoint, it's, oh my, about all. But when you look at it from God's standpoint, another whole world. Another whole world. Another whole world. And I'm telling you, John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You know what? If you're lost here this morning without Christ, you're as good as in hell right now with the door shut, the lock rusted up, and the key thrown away. Unless something breaks that chain in your life, the wrath of God already abides on you. You say, well, I'm successful. Well, you may be sick. I got a lot of money. I can buy my way out of anything. Yeah, but you won't buy your way out of that one. But Gentiles are screwy, you see. They don't get it. They don't get it. Last week, the news media, and I love the father news media. I think it's just, you know, I don't, I don't have that, those little things you put on your TV that you, you, you shoot people and, and you have, you play golf and you bowl, whatever those things are called. We, 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 yeah, we, yeah. I don't have those, so I have to watch the news. <coughs> One is cheaper, two is definitely more exciting. How about the flap this week over Obama's pastor, Jeremiah Wright? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. And they had him on a, a, on a deal there where he talked about, he talk, and this is, this is Gentile mindset. Now, this is Gentile mindset. He, he had him on a thing on Hannity and Cones where uh, Hannity had... Uh, he had, uh, he had interviewed him a year ago or whatever, and, and he couldn't get a word in rise. And this guy kept putting back, what about liberation theology? What about, have you read this guy's book on liberation theology? And, of course, Hannity hadn't. You know, he wasn't prepared for that. But the bottom line is, you know what liberation theology is? First of all, you know where it comes from? It comes from an archbishop down in El Salvador by the name of Archbishop Romero, who was part of the communist movement to overthrow the San uh, Salvador government. You know what liberation theology is? This is Gentiles. Remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, somebody asked a question about the three races there, and, and, and I showed you how the Japheth was a conqueror and a murderer? You know, what gen, you know what Gentiles do with the gospel? They make it into liberation theology. You know what liberation theology is? If the government goes against the teachings of Christ, then you have a responsibility as a, as a Christian to take up arms and overthrow that government. That's what this man's preaching down there. Liberation theology started with Archbishop Romero, who, who stood up there, and, and he was a Jesuit, by the way, and he stood up there and he said, we're going to overthrow this country because Jesus was not the Savior of the world. Jesus was not the man, God's gift to mankind. Jesus was a revolutionist. And that's where they form it from. And that's where Gentiles go. That's where Gentiles go. Right now, America has rejected the Word of God and gotten rid of His Word. 
And I'll tell you what, one of the greatest verses in America, facing America, is also a great verse that for any child of God that, that forgets who God is, and in Job chapter 9, verse 4, because it's so true. It says, God, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has, who has hardened Himself against Him and prospered? And the answer to that is nobody. No nation, no individual, nobody. We always like to use the expression, and moms and dads should never use it with kids unless they have to. Husbands and wives should never use it together, uh, back and forth. It's a terrible thing. You shouldn't tell it to your friends, or if you're dating, you shouldn't tell it to your girlfriend or your boyfriend. But for God to use it, it's really a good one. You know what it is? My way or the highway. That's God's stand. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way. His way or the highway. And it's a very narrow highway. All right, then we come to verses 19 and 20. And probably the greatest single place in all the Bible to open up the Scriptures. Really the key. I've learned more from these two verses about my Bible, about God, and God opening up my understanding by any other single place or passage in the Word of God. This is an absolute necessity in time if you're ever going to, I can think about six or seven places that are on the magnitude scale of this that uh, are just incredible. Now, here's what he says, starting in verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God had, hath showed it unto them. Now, here comes the verse. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know what that verse says? God says He made He made the He made the physical things, heaven, earth, man, you, everything is down here, that you might understand the things that you can't see: heaven, hell, life, death, eternity. They're clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. You know what God did? Sometime before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, and I don't know where this fits, probably back there in Proverbs 8 someplace, God walked out on the banister of the third heaven and looked down through the expanse of eternity and He's talking to His, his, uh, his, his Son and the Spirit of God. And who else was there? Maybe the angels? I don't know. And He simply said this, I'm going to make a creation. And this creation is going to be grand. It's going to be spectacular. And he was talking about what he was going to do it, and, and somebody said, well, Lord, that is, that is incredible. But you know what? What kind of pattern are you going to use? He said, what do you mean? He says, well, you don't do anything with a pattern or a plan. He says, the main concept of you is consistency. How, what plan, what pattern are you going to use in making all this? God thought for a minute. I've got you well, you know I'm telling you a story here. God doesn't have to think for a minute. <clears throat> But if I just told you the way God does it, it wouldn't be as exciting as the way I'm telling you. God thought for a minute and he said, oh, I know. I know what the pattern will be. It'll be a perfect pattern. And somebody said, well, what's that? He says, it'll be me. God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So everything physically that God made will have three parts to it. Three is the order of the universe. You ever notice that when you're living down here, you got three things, the air, the land, and the sea. You ever notice music has three parts? 
You ever notice that uh, uh, you can be married as a husband and wife, but you're not considered a family till the third part shows up? Three is a number of the order in the Bible and the completion in the Bible. I mean, everything. Your body is built in the system of three. When God made man, he made him a body, soul, and spirit, three. And wherever you go, three heavens. The ark had three levels. Tabernacle had three in the Old Testament, had three sections to it. Everything falls down. In the Old Testament, you got a new heavens, new earth, and a new, uh, new Jerusalem. And out there in Revelation, you got the Jew, you got the Gentile, and you got the uh, body of Christ. Everything breaks down into a system of threes. And what God does with that, and when he takes that, he says, all right, now I'm going to show you the things that you can't see and understand are going to be shown to you, and you're going to be able to understand them if you look at the things that I made, because everything I made reveals who I am. This comes back to that concept of God dealing with a man, a Gentile man, on his conscience. I read a, good, I read a great book a number of years ago. It was, well, probably 20 or 25 years ago, but it was an incredible book. I don't have a copy of it, but it was a book that I had borrowed from somebody, and I sure made my notes out of it. And it was simply, the title was something like this, The Imprint of the Godhead on the Physical Universe. And it was an incredible book. And if you can grasp what I'm going to get into now in this section here of Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, if you can grasp the truth of what I'm going to give you today, it'll really help you in a number of ways. First of all, it'll help you uh, not only understand how God approaches and deals with Gentiles, which you and I are, are part of that, even though if we're saved, we're not physically part of it anymore or spiritually. It'll help you better understand that concept but it will also give you understanding why that as you deal with people, you have an insight into people that goes beyond where those people are. They're all in their little legend in their own mind syndrome. You'll understand better why in this world there is no such thing, no such thing as an atheist. Now, the word atheist comes from a couple of Latin Greek words, ah meaning no or, you know, Ah, uh, no, like ah, uh, millennial, no millennium. Theist, atheist, theist comes from the Greek word theos, which is the Greek word for God. We get our word theology from it. So when a man is an a or a woman is an atheist, they're a, they, they don't believe, they're against the knowledge of theos, theistic, theology, God. So an atheist is someone that claims that there is no God. We'll be back to him in a moment. Then you have another group of people which are called agnostics. Again, the word a, uh, against, against or no, and the word gnostic. Gnostic is where we get our word knowledge from. A gnostic back in the Middle Ages or in the, in the early centuries was a knower. It was a seer. It was a man who had a higher uh, understanding of the things in life than the average person. So they called them gnostics. And uh, we, Gnostic is, the, is where we get our word knowledge. So we're an atheist as someone that rejects God. A agnostic is someone who is against or rejects the knowledge of what God says. And you're going to find in dealing with people, especially today, that, uh, that, uh, that there are people who say, well, I'm an atheist. And somebody else says, I'm an agnostic. Now, you need to understand how this thing works. Because... When somebody tells you that, your first inkling is going to be, and I have people call me this, how do I deal with an atheist? 
Well, that's not the question. In fact, there isn't a question. There's a statement. It's not how do I deal with an atheist. That's not how you approach it. You approach it from the fact there is no such thing as an atheist. The moment you give an atheist credibility by saying he is one of, then you lose the opportunity to reach him. Because in reality, from the God standpoint, I don't care what a man says. A man could say, I don't believe in God all day long. The Bible says that God was the true light that lighteth every man. He knows there's a God. He chooses, he chooses to reject that God. And the moment you give him credibility of being someone that can be totally void of God and God's spirit, you've lost the argument. When a guy would say to me, well, I'm an atheist, I said, you can't be. Then he say, why not? I said, because there is no such thing. Being an atheist was like when I, somebody said one time, uh, you know, can I walk your dog for you? And I said, absolutely. And I said, there's only one needs to be walked. And he said, which one that? I said, it's the big yellow, brown, black one down there that's big and small and has got a tail and got, uh, and he says, well, that, that, there's no dog like that. And I said, yeah, I know. Well, how am I going to walk him? You can't. There's no such thing as an atheist. It's made up contrite because if a man wants to reject God, but there isn't a person on this planet that can say down in the bottom of their heart, there is no such thing being as God. You know how you get to that point of being an atheist, as you claim to be? You educate yourself out of it. But you know what? You can, you can, you can educate yourself out of the knowledge of God. You can educate yourself out of the belief in God. But you cannot educate yourself out of the Holy Spirit of God. Somebody get up and say, well, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. Deep inside, the Holy Spirit of God is saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. I'm an atheist. That guy said, I'm an atheist. And then a little bit later on, he said, I'm a GD atheist. And I said, well, gee, that's kind of inconsistent. If you don't believe in God, why would you use the name of a God you don't believe in putting words in your language? See how it works? You just got to be smarter than they are. Man said, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Christ. I said, my Bible says, know their name given among men whereby you must be saved. You know how I know that God is true and Christ is true? Did you ever hear a man cussing Buddha's name? You ever hit your finger with a hammer and say, Confucius! Ever have somebody pull out in front of you and you wind down the window and give them the old friendly hand gesture and say, Shamaka Ramaduti? <laughs> no. Why is it always God's name? Why is it always Christ? Why is it the great words that unsaved people use have to do with God, Christ, damn, and hell? I'll tell you why. Because the wrath of God is already on them. I don't use words like that. You know why? I use words like praise the Lord, praise illusion. I use words like bless God. You know why? Because I'm saved. And when I'm saved, I talk like where I'm going. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, so my vocabulary changes, and now I talk. When I hit my finger, it's praise God from whom all Tears do flow. You know why? That's where I'm going. I'm saved. Glory to God. When an unsaved man goes through life, he talks about the judgment in his life, even if he doesn't believe it. 
Gentiles are screwy. I'm telling you. God get up and say, I'm an atheist. Then he'll string off a real cuss words that talks about God, Jesus Christ, and all these things and all the derivatives of it, and then still look at you and say, I'm an atheist. Nuts. Nuts. All right, now I want to show you how this thing works, and it's quite incredible. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. You want to turn to it and follow along, it might be beneficial to you. Now keep in mind, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 said, The invisible things of Him, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Oh, I look at Psalms 19. This is why there's no such thing as an atheist, folks. They may tell you that. When you know what I'm about to give you, you can deal with them better. But this is stuff you have to understand and know about what's going on. This is God's, This is why Romans chapter 1 is so vitally important because we are to bear fruit among the Gentiles. All right, Psalms 19, 1 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Down to day utter His speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices the strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. All right, now, when you come and look at God's creation, you're going to find that there's three things that God reveals himself through. The first thing God reveals himself through is the Bible. That's the first thing. And then the second thing you're going to find in this passage here is God reveals himself through the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. In a few moments, we're going to look and see how God reveals himself through the earth and through the animals. And I guess if you wanted a fourth one, which is absolutely true, but it doesn't fit with where we're going, the fourth one would be Christ. But I want you to look there at Psalms chapter 19 and verse 2. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day unto day, utter a speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. Verse 3, no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Then there's no language barrier with the message that God puts out. They're lying. What do you mean by that? Oh, you know, when you girls get together and you say, well, I went out with so-and-so last night. Boy, did he give me a line. It's what you say. His, their line is gone out to the ends of the earth. And it says down there in verse, uh, uh, verse uh, uh, in them, verse 4, in them, in the heavens, hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. And then look at verse 5, which is as a bridegroom coming. He makes the sun there a picture of Jesus Christ, my bridegroom, coming out of his chamber to come back for me. Now God built into his creation everything about him. When God deals with a man's conscience, Gentile, he not only takes the, what we've seen so far, he not only takes that man's conscience on which is written the word of God, he also takes the creation that he made. And God uses through his spirit that witness to declare himself to uh, men and women in this planet. 
back about the time of Columbus, and Columbus is about 1492, a little bit later on by the time the pilgrims got here and they began to move in westward. And you know, the pilgrims came here uh, with what we commonly know as the uh, Geneva Bible, which was the forerunner of the King James Bible. They came over at about 1620. Uh, the King James Bible wasn't out in production at that point, and, uh, but there was a King James Bible that then later replaced the Geneva Bible. And when they came down here, one of their goals was to, to uh, be missionaries to the Indians. And they looked at it as the fact that it's a new world. We're going to escape the oppression of Europe, which was terribly oppressive to them as Bible believers. So they came to this country and they said, we're going to found a country that is based on the Word of God, how we want to do it, and then we're going to, we're going to reach out to these Indians. And we're going to try to win them to Christ and we're going to put the whole aspect of the Great Commission to work in our lives. You know what? When they got here, they found some interesting things. They found in many of the Indian tribes, you know what they found? They found that they, they, had, a, they had a profound reverence for a great white father. Why, you take that concept, great white father, and you put it in Matthew chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 1, you got the concept of God in your Bible. Not only did they have a great reverence for a great white father, but which they knew created everything and was in charge of everything, they gave reverence to a great spirit. Now, how in the world did the Indians, and I'm not saying that all of them were this way. You got good and bad just like you got people in the world today that hear the gospel every day. But God revealed himself to them through his creation that some of them understood that there was a great white father who operated by a great spirit and they had enough conscience in them that when they went out on a hunt and they took the little bows and arrows and they pulled that thing back and they hit that deer and the deer fell down. The first thing they did was take their bow and their arrows and lay it down by that deer and get down and thank the great spirit and the great white father for bringing them food to their table to feed their family. And they call them heathen? Well, some of you will go out here this afternoon and you'll chow down and you won't even thank God what he gave you. And they're heathen? Whew. What that Bible does for you? Listen. In the 1700s, as a white man pushed westward, he met some tribes, and those tribes asked that white men who had never seen white men, never heard of white men, but when they saw them, they asked if they had any news of the son of the great white father. Now, how in the world, you don't get it all in the history books. In fact, you don't get any of it in the history books. Listen, the Nas Pierce Indian tribe from Washington State in Oregon, when they heard that the white man was here, they walked 2,000 miles to ask them if they had the book the great white father had given us that talked about his son. You don't get it from history. You get it from John 1, 9, that he was the true light, the light of every man that coming into the world. You know what? When you, if you're in a place out in the country someplace and you look up at the stars, Right now, you can see 5,000 stars. From the city, you probably can't see 1,000. Well, boy, I've been some places out there when I've been just lost. 
I mean, it look, the Milky Way looks like somebody took a paintbrush and painted a white stripe down the sky. It's incredible. It's incredible. And I, I, have, I have watched this thing. You know, I'm an astronomer. I, and I, and I, I take pictures. Most of you, that little bookmark we gave you of the Horsehead Nebula, I took that picture. I, I, I've always been in astronomy for when I was, and I, I love showing people uh, things through my telescope. I used to set up down here in the corner of Nolan Road and 40 Highway. And I used to set up a TV monitor when, and put a big, te- I mean, the thing was humongous. And you could see it walking down the street and put a big shine up and put the moon on that big TV screen. And I would say, come let your children drive the telescope. It was all computer. And they would pack up there and come over and all the, and I'd let those kids sit down. You know what? And, I, and I've been to star parties where we showed people that didn't own a telescope. They'd look in there and they'd see those galaxies and they'd see those nebula and they'd see those belts on, a, on Jupiter and the, and the poles on Mars and they'd see all of those things. Never in one time in my life did anybody ever look up and say, wow, isn't evolution great? Not one time. I got a lot of, wow, guzia, whoa, whoa, that's neat. Never, never one time was his an evolution great. You know what? When you look at that creation, you know what it tells you? This tells you somebody real big and you're real small. Did you ever notice the four things man is, is mystified with? I hate to give you this because this is a great sermon. Four things. Joe, I saw you do that. You buy the tape like everybody else. You're going to get this. You pay three bucks for it like everybody else does. But this shows you. Did you ever notice the four things that man is mystified with? They're all things that dwarf him. The first things are mountains. You ever lived out where the mountains are and you could just walk out in the morning and you see the Rockies, the uh, Grand Tetons, and the snow-capped? Or the, I remember one time I was in South Africa. And I, we were down there in, uh, in Serengeti and down there in, uh, in the plains. And, and I, we got up there, you know, and it was kind of misty when we got there in the morning because it was early. And you could hear the all night, you hear the lions going, you know, and the, and the, and the giraffes and the monkeys. And, and I don't know what giraffes. They said, oh, yeah, they said, we're giraffes. We're over here. Anyway, and it, down there. And I'll never forget, the mist cleared off. And there, I mean, honest to goodness, from my point of vantage point, from one end to the other, going up, was that great mountain, boy. I mean, that thing was just, uh, and it, my, what is the mountain? Kilimanjaro. There it was. I mean, snow-capped. I mean, that thing, I just stood there, and I could have stayed there and looked at that thing all day. You know why? Because deep down in my heart, God used that, as he will with any man, to tell you that that mountain just didn't come because of time and evolution. You ever been by the ocean? The ocean, man, you can sit by the ocean for hours. The ocean just comes and it goes and it rolls in and it rolls out. You can't see the end of it. You can't see anything around it. If you're out in the middle ocean, there's no perspective anywhere. It's like being in outer space. Man looks at that ocean with, its, with its, all, of its, all of its attributes and he sits there and he ponders. How does, it, how does the tides work? How does the moon pull and change this and that? I'll tell you the next thing man looks into all the time. And that's fire. You ever been around a campfire? When that thing is just burning and blazing and you look down at those embers and you just, you just, you're transfixed on that fire. And the last thing man looks at and wonders about is the heavens. 
and the stars in those heavens. Those are the four things that man is transfixed on in his life. Nobody looks at that creation and thinks, ah, evolution did this. And I'll tell you why that is. Because we already saw back here where it says that as a bridegroom, Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 says this. It's a passage on the second coming of Christ. And it says, it says simply this. It says, the son of righteousness, talking about Christ, shall arise with healing in his wings to smite the nations. But an interesting fact in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 is it isn't spelled S-O-N, it's spelled S-U-N. And that verse, along with some other verses, shows you very clearly that when God wanted to reveal Himself and let you know and me know the things that we couldn't understand and see, He did it by the things that He created. You know why? Because the Son, the Son, is our greatest witness of what God is. You know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, He's a trinity? You know there's three types of rays which come from the Son? X-ray, gamma, and beta? You know that the three types of rays which come from the sun match up to the three persons of the Holy Trinity of God? First one is x-rays. X-rays are invisible. You can't see them. The Bible says God is a spirit. He's invisible. The second kind of rays is light rays. That's a type of Christ. You can see light rays. But the third type of rays is heat rays. You can't see them, but you feel them, type of the Holy Spirit of God. When God fixed that thing, He fixed that thing. The thing about that sun in the sky is a picture of Him. You want to understand what God is? Understand what that is. And that's what God uses. The Bible says in Job chapter 25 verse 5, it says, Behold the moon, and it shineth not. You know the moon doesn't shine by its own light? The moon reflects the light of the sun. Well, as a Christian, and the moon's a type of the Christian, you don't shine by your own light. You reflect the light from the sun. Want to go a little bit farther? The sun rules the day. Second coming of Christ. The moon rules the night. Church age. Right now the Bible says that we're in the church age. It's the great night time. And the only light that this world has when you go out at night is the light of the moon. The only world this light has right now is the light that shines through you from the day star which lights this night. You want to understand God? Understand those things. Those are the things that God reveals to a man or a woman when they begin to follow that thing through. The moon follows the sun just as the body of Christ should follow Christ. Both the sun and the moon have their orbits and their rotation against the world. The world rotates against the sun. And that's exactly what you and I should be. The world should go this way. We should go this way. A couple of weeks ago, they had a great scientific event. It was called a lunar eclipse. Really one of the nicest ones I've seen for a long time. I wanted to get some pictures of it, but I was, I was sick that night, really sick, and all I could do was go out and, uh, you know, and get back in as quick as I could, but I saw it. It was, it was a really good one. And uh, I'm not much on a lunar eclipse, but that one was a good one. Everybody was talking about it on the radio, on the science channel. I mean, all the astronomy clubs had parties. And everybody got up and they saying this. They're saying now a lunar eclipse happens when the earth passes between the plane from the sun and blocks out the light and then it, it, the, the, moon is, or the moon then, because of the earth coming between it, blocks out its light and that's an eclipse. That's the standard scientific jargon on it. You want to know what it really is? That sun's a type of Christ. That moon's a type of you and me. You and I are supposed to have a light that shines in the darkness. But you know what? Unfortunately... Anytime the world 
comes in between you, the sun, and you, the moon, your light's going to go out. You got a picture of an out-of-fellowship Christian. That moon shines so bright up and out sometimes when the moon was so bright that it, uh, it was unbelievable, cast a shadow. And then some nights you go out and you can't see the light. You know why? Because the clouds of this world have obscured that light that comes through the moon from the sun. And in some of your lives today, I guarantee you, the clouds of this old world have come into your life and your sun light is not shining from the sun through you like it needs to. You're not lighting the night. Then you have the stars. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 41, verse 42 says, There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. You see that thing? You go out on a starry night and you see some really bright stars, you see some kind of bright stars, almost bright stars, and really faint stars. You know what he says? He says, There's one glory of the sun, that's Christ. Another glory of the moon, that's the church. And then he breaks it down individually. And another glory of the star. Then he says this. As one star differed from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. At the judgment seat of Christ, some of you are going to shine so bright, it's going to block out the sun. Some of you are going to be kind of bright. Some of you are going to be not so bright. And some of you aren't going to shine at all. Why? Because you didn't grasp the concept and do with your life down here what God called you to do. Incredible. Want to talk about the constellations? There's 88 of them. Twelve of them fit into what we call the zodiac. And the zodiac is what we nominally know in the world today as where your, your horoscope is. The horoscope really tells you a horror story about what's going to happen to you in your life. And I don't want to pretend for a minute there's any credibility in horoscopes. Nothing whatsoever. You don't design your life by the stars. You design your life around a book. Let's be clear on that. That people like to see. I mean, when they meet in a bar, you know, or they meet someplace, or anywhere. Not to be a bar. I just like bars. It doesn't have to be any place. <laughs> you meet somebody and they say, Hi, my name is Bob. Hi, my name is, is, is Sue. How are you? I'm fine. Oh, that rhymes. Sue, how are you? Yeah, well, I'm quite clever. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know what? I never believed in God and heaven and all that spiritual stuff before, but tonight I do. Why is that, Bob? Because I've seen my first angel. Go ahead, Joe. Go ahead. You can write that one down, Joe. Go ahead. <coughs> Go ahead. Why aren't you writing that down, Joe? Huh? Why are you? I mean, even though you're married, there's variations of it you can still use. Like, honey, last week I did a study in the Bible, and I found out that there's 9,443 references in the Bible. You don't have to know if there is, because she don't know that truth. And you just simply say, you know what I've come to conclusion? You are the prettiest angel of them all. Why don't you write that down, Joe? Come on, Mr. Write Down, Steal My Message Man. Come on. Now look at your dad back there. He's getting them all down. Look at that. Joe John. Joe John, he got them all down back there. Well, you know what? He's going to sell them on eBay this afternoon probably. I thought John Knox Village a couple weeks ago kind of checking some things out and visiting on some people, and I heard these two old folks kind of talking. You know, he was kind of, I guess they had just met. And it was kind of hilarious, you know. They're talking. And he says, he says, you know, you know how it is. You go to some place. You say, what, what's your sign? Well, my sign is Leo. What are you? Well, I'm a Gemini. Oh, Leos and Gemini are compatible. See? He asked her. He says, Hi, what's your sign? She said, Blue Cross. <laughs> that that really didn't happen, but I like to throw that little story in there. 
You got 12 constellations. Now, it doesn't take an idiot to figure out you got 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, did you ever study? You ever study? You ever study the 12 tribes and see how they lay out the gospel? Lilio, that's a lion. Virgo, that's a virgin. Sherpines, that's a serpent. Orion, that's the mighty hunter Nimrod. Draco, the dragon, crooked serpent, Isaiah 27. Argo, the ark. Uh, the, the Euphrates, the river. The, uh, Pegasus, Andromeda, and Perseus. Uh, I mean, and there's one. There's one. Here you got a guy over here named Perseus. And then you got a woman over here called Andromeda. And Andromeda and Perseus are up there right over here. And the story is that the great dragon is after Andromeda. And Andromeda is going to be taken by the great dragon. And Perseus comes and rescues her. Hello! Andromeda comes out of another constellation. You know what that constellation is called? It's called Pegasus. You know what Pegasus is? The winged horse. You know why? Because when Perseus comes to get Andromeda, they get on the winged horse. And off they go. Revelation chapter 19. It won't beat the book. It won't beat it at all. You know what Job said in Job chapter 12, verse 7 and 8? He said, God says, the, the, the things that I made clearly reveal the things you can't see, even his eternal power and Godhead. Job said in Job 12, 7 and 8, But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and to the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Watch verse 9. Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord has wrought this. You know what he just told you? He says the hand of God made all of those things. And when you ask them, they'll teach you about God. Oh, I wish I had a month to give this stuff to you. You want to study unclean spirits? Somebody asked me one time, what's a demon? What's a devil? You want to under, that's, that's something you can't see. You want to understand it in the Bible? Study birds. Ezekiel 31, Daniel 4, Matthew 13, Revelation 18. Study birds. God shows you what you can't see but what he made. Somebody asked me one time, well, you know, there was a man in the New Testament. He had 12,000 demons in him. How does one man have 12,000 demons? Well, the answer to that is to study flies in your Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, Matthew chapter 12, verse 27. That's how you learn it. It's a pattern. It's a pattern. Job chapter 39, verse 1 through 30, talks about wild goats. All in the same chapter. Wild goats, wild asses, unicorns, peacocks, ostriches, hawks, grasshoppers, the horse, and the eagle. They all mean something. They all mean something. First Peter, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 22, you know what it says? It says, the unsaved man returneth to his, as a dog, uh, returneth to his vomit, so does an unsaved man. Now, I don't mean to be gross, but you're going to hear worse than this on television this afternoon. And if you got a little baby on the way home, you'll probably handle worse. But that's a true statement. You want to study an unsaved person? Study a dog. Now, I got, and you know I'm a dog lover. I mean, I love dogs. I mean, the more I'm around people, the more I love dogs anyhow. But I love dogs. Some of you all love your dogs. We talk about our dogs. When I go away, I, I take care better of my dogs than most parents take care of their kids. And my dogs listen better, by the way, too. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm a dog lover. When I'm sitting down there at night chilling back after my last appointment and I'm just kind of fresh out, they're all with me. I got three labs, a black one, a yellow one, and a brown one. 
brown one goes about 120, the yellow one goes about 90, and the black one goes about 80. And now when I come down step, they got one goal. It's a game we play. Everybody get as close to Bob as we can. <laughs> Nothing in this world and sitting there and watching the big brown one on his back with his head in my lap, the little white one on the floor, sound asleep with the head to the left with both four, four legs straight up in the air. And Tinker, the black one over here, just doing her own thing. I love them. Nothing worse than this. And two of my dogs, really, they cut their own toenails. They chew their toenails off, and they're manicured perfectly. Save me some bucks. I appreciate that. Extra treats. But I'm sitting there. But I got to tell you, they like to lick you. They like to kiss you. But at the end of the day, dogs some of the dirtiest animals you ever had in your life. And I say that full knowing how much I love them. Because that verse is true. And I don't mean to be gross, but do you know if a dog throws up, you know he'll go eat his own vomit? No, I appreciate that because in my house I never have to bother cleaning it up. When I'm getting sick, I'll say I'll be back in a little bit, come back, it's all taken care of. I appreciate that. Dogs do some gross things. I don't mean to be gross. But you know dogs eat their own droppings? I, I don't understand. I asked a vet one time. Now, you know this is true. And it drives me nuts. I mean, I'll have three of them go out and I got a police officer. You know? Stop! I try to work the angles out where I'm standing between them. So when this one goes, the, the little white one, she's right over there at lunchtime. That's the way it is. I talked to a vet one time. I had a German shepherd. And he, he, would, he was terrible at it. And the first thing the vet told me was, is, you know why they do that? And I said, no. He says, because they have a vitamin deficiency in their body that they're trying to replace. Whoa. Once I heard that, first thing I did on the way home was buy me some vitamins. <laughs> oh, I, I don't want that problem. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I stopped off at Walgreens and got me some vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> I said, hey, honey, come on. We'll share these together, okay? Now, I'm, I'm an idiot, okay? I know that. Here's my mindset. I think I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to fix this dog, German Shepherd. So I got me a can of red hot black pepper. And I say to him, myself, I say it to him, he couldn't understand me. I said it to myself. I'm going to break you with this. So I let him go out there, got him away, went up that thing, and I put that red pepper every place on there, man. I mean, it was so thick. And I said, now, I'm going to break you with that right now, once forever. Open that door and said, come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. <laughs> he ran over there. He liked it better with a pepper on than he did before. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It, it, it just didn't work. It didn't work. But you ever notice how that's like an unsaved man? You know an unsaved man? He'll go to the place where he'll go out and get drunk, come home so he's so drunk, he'll throw up. See, that's what it really means when it says returned unto his vomit. It doesn't mean as an unsaved man you vomit. It means that every time you go out, hey, if I went out one time and did something that absolutely made me go home and just puke my guts up, I don't think I'd do it the next day again. 
Why do they? Why do they? Why is it time after time after time? I said to a guy one time who was lost. You want to study unsafe people? Study dogs. You know what Proverbs chapter 26 verse 11 says? It says an unsafe woman is like a sow. Now this is why people don't like the Bible. Now don't get mad at me. I didn't say that. God said it. I wouldn't call anybody that, but God did. And just as the dog returns to his vomit, a sow returns to her, mar- her mire. And it's just one of those things where that's how God looks at it. Proverbs eleven twenty two says, As a jewel of gold in a swine's snout, so is a fair woman without discretion. That's a great verse. That verse will help you so you don't marry an unsaved woman no matter how good she looks. It isn't playboy according to God, it's pig boy. Now you see an unsaved woman with no discretion, unsaved, and she's all gussied up. Bible says, don't get mad at me. Bible says, the world looks at it and says, whoa, that's what I'm talking about. God looks at it and says, what's the matter with you, Bob? Don't you know that's, that's, just, that, that's, that's just a gold-studded pig? That's a pig that likes to wallow in the mire that puts some gold on her so you'd think she was beautiful. Now don't get mad at me. And if you are mad at me and you're unsaved, I got a great deal for you. Get saved, you won't have to worry about it anymore. In Matthew chapter 23, called false religious vipers. And it ties to Genesis chapter 3 as the serpent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9 through 10, he said a Christian, a Christian is likened to an ox. A Christian couple are likened to two oxes yoked together. In the Old Testament, they use oxen. You know why? You know what an ox is? Oxen aren't born. Oxen are born one way, then they have to get an operation that makes them a new creature, then they become an ox. You weren't born a child of God. Once you got the operation of God made without hands, it made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's why you're likened to oxen. You know, in the Old Testament, it was a violation of law to, to plow with an ox tied to an ass. You know why that is? Because an ass in the Bible is a picture of an unsaved man. That's what the Bible says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As a Christian, you shouldn't yoke yourself, get married to an unsaved person. That's how you learn these things. Prayer warriors in the Bible are likened to eagles flying high. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31. They, they see everything around them. Christ is called a lamb. He's called a lamb. At the first coming of Christ, he's called a lion at the second coming. I mean, it's all right there. It's all perfect for you. You couldn't miss it. Couldn't miss it. Couldn't miss it. I talked about the fact that, uh, that you talked about the fact that, uh, 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 that unsaved man is likened to an ass. And, of course, in the Gospels, tell me, t- somebody tell me what today is. I'll help you. Give you a key. What's today? Yeah, hurry up because my fingers are cr- cramping up. Palm Sunday. You know what happened on Palm Sunday? One Palm Sunday, that's when he entered into Jerusalem. They put down the palm leaves. Did you ever study that story? You know, in that story, when you put it all together, the Bible says that he tells them there's an ass over here and there's an ass's colt. Jesus tells them to bring both of them. He rides the ass's colt, but he doesn't ride the ass. You know why? There's a reason for it that lays out one of the greatest concepts that you're ever going to find out about how God is working with people. It's that simple. And you know what? Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. You want to be a soul winner? You want to know what the key to soul winning is? 
You study the things that God did and he made and you learn how to do the things you can't see. You don't have to get a program. You don't have to go buy a book. Didn't you ever find it strange that, that God said to them in Matthew chapter 4, 19, I'm going to make you fishers of men? Did you ever, ever wonder why the first three or four disciples that he called were commercial fishermen? Did you ever see in the Bible how they fish? Did you ever see in the Bible what happens when they don't fish the right way? You want to learn how to be a soul winner? Learn how to fish. You don't have to go buy somebody's book. You don't have to go to somebody's soul winning seminar. He shows you the things you can't see by the things that he made. Just that simple. The masses of the Gentile nations are lost. They're in darkness today. Yet the Bible says, because of what I just showed you, they are without excuse. The witness of God and His creation and who He is has been sealed in His creation. And His Holy Spirit of God works with the conscience of man, so when a man is faced with those things, he wonders about those things. He wonders why the birds fly south every fall. He wonders why they get back up. He looks at those little, that little beetle called the Germanite beetle. That its only way of escape is it's got two little pods on the back of its thorax. That's what they call bugs, his lower body, thorax. And you know what he does when he's going to be attacked? One little pouch back there has some kind of mixture in it. The other one has another kind. And when he squirts those out together, it ignites and it sends him off rocket propelled. I wouldn't mind having some of that myself every once in a while. Now, you think that's by evolution? We realize that if he just got a little more of one and not enough of another, it would be a gigantic little explosion there. God does those things. He puts his hand and seals his hand and his fingerprints on his creation. Now, when an unsaved Gentile without Christ, who has seared his conscience with a hot iron, 1 Timothy 4, 2, and he says to you, well, what about all the heathen that haven't heard? You are a better position to give him an answer. Guy said to me one time after I, after I was witnessing, he heard me and he came over and he said, I got a question for you. He says, where do the heathen go? I said, oh, they go to Sears. They go to Penny's. They go to Walmart. You see, we like to think there's a difference between the heathen over here than the heathen right here. There ain't no difference. You know why? Because God has revealed himself to both. That's why you have some of those Indian tribes that knew about the great white father, the great spirit, and looked for a book from his son, and then you had some of them that did human sacrifice. That's why today you have some who find God in our country and some who find God in this city, and the other ones are just sacrificing their whole families. It's the same system. You've got to understand that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And he's the true light that lighteth every man. But what a man does with that light after God lights him is no different in Africa or the Aborigines or down in the Congo as it is in Kansas City. God reveals himself in his entirety. And the fact that you and I can't fully understand it certainly doesn't mean that that's the way it works. He does it to his own pleasure the way he does it through his natural creation who is his revelation about himself. You want to find out about the things that you can't see? Study the things that God made. Study the things that God made. You always want to remember that at one time, every one of those nations 
knew God and had his light. And every one of those nations turned their back on him and rejected the light and his revelation. And God took away his truth from them. You need to know that. There has never been a nation on this planet that does not have a complete understanding and revelation of God at one point or the other. You say, well, I don't want to look at Europe. Europe is atheistic and amoral and completely no concept of God. But 400 years ago, they were the nation that God, the continent that God used to spur the great, uh, uh, under Martin Luther, the great gospel going to the world through the Reformation. And America, America was built its foundation. Its founding fathers built the King James 1611 into its foundation, the Constitution. When they first got it, they sent it back because they didn't have enough references to God and made him put two more references in. It was founded on the Bible. It was founded on the principle. I don't care the fact that men today legislate evil. I don't care the fact that evil is called good and good is called evil. I don't care that truth has fallen in the street. I don't care that men don't understand judgment. It's a fact. This country was built on that book. And it's where it's at today because it's rejected it. And it's on its way. I mean, just like England, an absolute apostate nation with no knowledge of God and no morals. Every nation on this planet had to retruth. And that's why the Bible says they're without excuse. And God now deals in those apostate nations on an individual basis through their conscience and their attitude of heart. If you ever see, go back to the sun a moment. If you ever see how God fixed that thing. God fixed his atmosphere. God fixed the atmosphere. We call it refraction. Did you ever see the sun set or the sun come up? When it goes at night, the sun looks 5,000 times bigger than it does when it's in the sky. You ever notice that? You ever see it go over water? You ever see it go over the landscape and that thing, as it gets down in the sky, it looks, it looks about this big when it's up in the sky. It looks like this. In the morning, it's the same way. Now, science calls that the refraction of light. That when you look up in astronomy, this is true. If you want to get the clearest, steadiest view, you look when the thing is straight overhead because our atmosphere is clouded with all kinds of crud. In fact, they say that if you're looking straight overhead, you're looking through about five miles of turbulence or dirt, whatever. If you're looking down on the horizon, you're looking through about 200 miles of it because it's all flattened out. So when you see the sun through that, that light is being refracted through all that and it makes it appear a lot bigger than it is. That's what Mr. Wizard would tell you. The Bible says this, God fixed that sun and the atmosphere and everything about it. Did you ever see it when it goes down? It's blood red. Did you ever see it when it comes up in the morning? It's blood red. God fixed it that the last thing man would see in an exaggerated form was the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleansed us from all sin. And at the end of the night, when the morning came, the first thing he saw in the morning was the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleansed us from all sin. One at night, one in the morning. First coming, second coming. single greatest thing God ever taught me was Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. God revealing himself, his fingerprints through his physical creation. The invisible things clearly seen and understood by the key things that God made. 
And therefore, ladies and gentlemen, not only as an unsaved people, but as God's people, we are without excuse. Every head bowed and every eye closed.